Hello, and welcome to Unabridged, the weekly podcast where teachers take on books. This is Sarah. Join us for bookish episodes and a monthly book club pick. This is Ashley. Find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Unabridged Pod, or go to our website, unabridgedpod.com, where the books we read are linked for purchase. This is Jen. Check out our Teachers Pay Teachers store, our Patreon page, and our newsletter. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts to support us. You want opinions about books? We've got them. Hi, and welcome to Unabridged. Today we are doing our part two, Get to Know the Unabridged Hosts. Back in February, we did our first episode using some questions that our ambassadors provided, but we had more than we could fit in one episode. So part two. Before we get started, I want to remind you all, if you could rate, review, and subscribe and Apple Podcasts, that helps us a lot. It helps new listeners find our podcast. We love your feedback, so reviews really help us as well. So again, if you could rate, review, and subscribe, we would greatly appreciate it. All right, before we get started, we're going to do our bookish check-in. Sarah, what are you reading? I am reading Chris McGreal's American Overdose, The Opioid Tragedy in 3X. I um, am just in the beginning of it. I, or we, I should say, were lucky enough to see Chris McGreal talk with Beth Macy several years ago at the Virginia Festival of the Book. And it was so eye-opening. And I we had all read Dope Sick, which was Macy's book. And as soon as I got home from that, I ordered McGreal's American Overdose. And I it's been on my shelf for quite some time. And I just started it. It is, again, horrifying. He tells it in three acts. I'm in the first act, which is labeled The Dealers. And it's starting to talk about the distribution of opioids in America and how this is largely an American problem. It has some of the same references that Dopesick did, but it's taking it, I think, a little bit more of a macro approach than a micro approach so far. But I don't, mm-hmm. but like again, I'm in it in just the beginnings. But so far, it's very compelling, and I know it's going to be a t- it's going to be a tough read, but a very educational read for me. I would really like to read that at some point. You can borrow it. <gasps> Thank you, friend. <laughs> Ashley. What are you reading? So one of the things I am reading and have been kind of dipping in and out of over time is Allie Brosh's Problems and Other Solutions. I am a huge fan of Allie Brosh. She had hyperbole and a half, was a webcomic. And so she is, she has these kind of intentionally crudely drawn designs for her comic. And what is amazing about her, I think is she just is able to insert humor, like laugh out loud humor into what are some pretty awful situations. And she does that really well. And her commentary on the internal parts of people is just fascinating. I think she is brilliant. I think she is a really talented artist and storyteller. And so I absolutely loved Hyperbole and a Half before. I loved the book that was put together for that. And then I was really excited to see problems and other solutions. She openly talks about her mental health and has a lot of struggles with depression. She has struggles with her self-perception and all those kinds of things. And so she also, because she's wildly famous, struggles with her relationship to social media and navigating all of that. And I appreciate all of that as well. And her willingness to explore those parts of herself and what she writes. 
And I think, I think she just integrates these larger messages into really small stories. So just small example is she has one of her comic essays is about when she was a very small child, she was like three, and she discovered that she could sneak through her cat door and get out of her house. And then she could go into her neighbor's dog door and she could go into her neighbor's house. And so the whole (laughs) essay is this story of how she was successfully disappearing into the neighbor's home for routinely. She would do this routinely while her grandmother was watching her. And the grandma thought that she was just like playing in her room, but she was sneaking into the neighbor's house watching him and then taking trinkets from his house and accumulating them into her drawer in her in her room. And the culminating event that resulted in her parents finally putting some pieces together about what was happening is that she decided to take the neighbor's cat. So she tries <laughs> to put the cat in the drawer and the the parents discover discover her hoard of all the items <laughs> she has, her little treasures that she has found in her neighbor's home. And so, I mean, it's that kind of thing that is, it was absolutely hilarious, also kind of horrifying. And that's her style, you know, it's just like, she's able to show what people think and the weird things they do because of it. And then unpack that in a really funny way. And so I think she's great. So again, that's Ali Brasha's problems and other solutions. And I think she's really talented. I really loved her book, Hyperbole and a Half. And I think she does such a good job conveying some really delicate issues. Yeah, she's really known for she has two, I, I keep wanting to call, I mean, they're basically like image essays. I mean, her work is both a webcomic and also there is like written paragraph commentary. So I think it's unique in that style as well. Mm-hmm. But she has two about depression specifically, and she's really well known for those because people feel there's a lot of commentary that again, she has kind of a cult following and people who love her work feel that she has spoken to the truth of what that feels like in a way that a lot of other people have not been able to articulate. So yeah, mm-hmm. I think she's great. What about you, Jen? What are you reading? So I am reading Alicia Rye's First Comes Like, which Sarah talked about a few months ago on the podcast, but so I won't say a ton about it, but I really love Rye's work. So I found out as I was, I've, I've been listening to this one on audio Thanks to Libro FM. And I found out as I'm listening that some of the characters in this book are connected with an earlier series that I really enjoyed of hers, Forbidden Love. I will also say that she is the most open door of open door romance authors. And that is more true in Forbidden Love than it is in this series. But yeah, this series is open door. Forbidden Love is really open door. So if you need if you need clarification of what that means, you can DM us and I can explain. But you know, I totally want to know. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so first comes like is about two characters. Gia is a YouTube sensation. She is an Instagram influencer. She has a great presence talking about makeup and self-care, but also really working to boost people's self-images and self-esteem and agency over their own decision-making processes. And Dave is an Indian Bollywood star, but Bollywood TV series. I can't remember what they're called, but anyway, so he has come to America because of some changes that have happened in his life, including the death of his brother, 
which meant he is now raising his niece. And so he has moved to America to sort of make some changes in his own life for his niece and to try to find new success because he needs money now. So he had been DMing Gia for a long time and they had built up a relationship online and she goes to meet him and discovers that she had been catfished. And yeah, the story, the story proceeds from there, but I just love it. I love Rai's work. She is very interested in promoting body positivity, sex positivity, diversity. I feel like she has all of these great things that are just always a part of her books that I really appreciate. And I think she has such a great touch with characters. So I find both of these characters to be really nuanced and empathetic. And I like them both so, so much, even when they do really silly things or make bad decisions, which I think is always a good sign. So that is First Comes Like by Alicia Rye. Well, I am now the only one who has not read that. So I need to <laughs> I need to remedy that situation. It sounds great. Yeah. The first two books in the series are also just great. I she is living with two friends and the first two books focus on her friends. Sorry, again, Sarah's covered a lot of this. So those of you who are faithful listeners have heard all this before, but I love their relationship with each other and the way they are affirming each other. They are telling each other tough truths. The bond between them is great. And the way that this connects to the Forbidden Love series is Gia is one of five sisters and one of her sisters is in the Forbidden Love series. And again, that's just this great bond between women and... <laughs> There is, of course, some sisterly competition and criticism, but it's also just a great family. So it's a lot of fun to see those things reappear. And now that it's doubled up between series, there's even more of that revisiting familiar characters, which is great. All right. Well, we are going to move on to our main segment, Get to Know Unabridged Part 2. So again, our ambassadors provided a lot of these questions. We got some from Instagram followers. We have some that are bookish and some that are non-bookish. So we're starting with a biggie. How do you balance life with kids, work, and doing a podcast? Ashley. <laughs> I said in the last episode, that this stuff makes me sweat. I, I, really, I really find much more comfortable the book realm and talking about books than I do my personal life. This is also true. I'm really great about speaking in front of people. I can present in front of people, all that stuff. But if I have to read something I've written, same phenomenon, super sweaty, terrible, terrible. <laughs> anyway, I'm going to endure. So I think, I think in a lot of ways, I don't do that very well. And I know I would like to say that I have sorted it out, but I also find it really comforting when other people just admit that it's hard to do that. I have found that when I think I'm doing one thing well, I'm dropping something else. So typically that seems to be the case for me that the podcast is a, it's an amazing part of my life and yet it's also a journey I could not have envisioned before we started. I had no idea what it was going to be like. And I think there's a lot of joy in that, but there's also a lot of struggle and it's a lot of work and it is a second job. It, it really takes a lot of hours every week. And that doesn't mean I don't love it, but the balance part is really hard. So it's hard to have a job that you're committed to that's a full-time job and also have kids and my kids are quite young. And so I am always trying to navigate spending time with them and playing with them and doing crafts and activities and science projects with them. and getting all the other things done. And I just don't do it very well. I talked before about 
Shonda Rhimes's book, Year of Yes. And that came along at a good time for me. And one of the things that I really appreciated about hearing that was how honest she was about the help that she got and how badly she needed it. And I think our family tries to do that. And when we can't do that and don't have a lot of help, I think there's comfort in just saying, I hope that I'm doing some part well, I'm doing my best. And sometimes that's not enough to make it all stay afloat. And I think that that's okay. That doesn't, you know, that doesn't have to be a bad thing. I think if you have things in your life that you're passionate about, and podcasting is certainly a passion project, then you just have to be okay with that and kind of the ups and downs. So that's where I am with it. Yeah, so much of that resonated. So Sarah, how about you? Anything to add? I feel like a lot of that's the same for all of us. Yeah, I just will reiterate what Ashley said. I think that I had no idea what I was getting into when I said I wanted to do a podcast, which has been an awesome journey and I love it so much. It it just takes a lot of time. And so I do find my kids are a a little older than Ashley's. So I do think that it makes it a bit easier with like balancing the kids because they do a lot of stuff on their own now. But but it's still, there's guilt and there, I mean, it's just trying to find the right balance for my family. And I don't know that I've done it yet, but I just keep trying. And mm-hmm. so a lot of the same thing, just things that Ashley said. I read an article and I, I'll see if I can find it and put it in the show notes. It's been a while, but it just said work-life balance is a myth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think in some ways that's comforting yeah. that there is no magical balance that we're going to reach. It's figuring out how to fit in, how to prioritize, how to schedule a week so that I can do what I need to do. And I think I I tend to have guilt no matter what my life situation. So there's always guilt that I could be doing more for some part of my life. But I also have a job that I love and I love the podcast. And of course, I love my family. And so I just have to accept that if I love all these things, I'm trying to shift around maybe which one's the priority at a given moment and just hope that each one gets equal opportunity at some point during each week. I also think it's easier to look at things in longer range units. Like if I look at a week instead of each day, I'm probably not doing all of those things equally each day. But if over the course of a week I've, you know, given time to each one, then maybe that helps. I don't know. I feel like I'm a non-expert semi trying to give advice right now, or maybe just trying to make peace with my own life. <laughs> maybe that's it. Anyway. Yeah. I think what we found with the podcast, and I do think that there's comfort in this is like, you do have some things that you're counting on making sure happen every week. And so those, sometimes that's frustrating because those things become a priority all the time instead of being able to be a little bit more long range. But then in other ways, I think that's a great thing about a passion like podcasting that every week you're like, these are, you know, we are going to release an episode. We're going to have our blog post for And so knowing that those things are coming, like you were saying, Jen, and trying to look at more of a global view, I do think that helps, but I have just, it's also just trying to manage the guilt and have a lot of grace with yourself because you can't do it all well at once. Mm -hmm. I don't think not for me anyway. So, all right. Well, I was going to (laughs) say, I feel like I chose a really dark question to start with. I did not intend for that to happen. So we're going to move on to something bookish now. And we are going to start with what book couldn't you put down? That all absorbing feeling when binging a great book. Sarah, what book would you say? My pick is one that Jen actually 
recommended to me, and it is Rachel Deloche Williams's My Friend Anna, The True Story of a Fake Heiress. Oh, my word. That <laughs> story was bonkers. And I just, I mean, it captivated me from the beginning. And I just wanted to read it because I have a lot to get done during the day. So I would set my alarm for like five and get up and read for an hour so that I could, because I just wanted to know what was was going to happen. And one time my husband came out and he was like, are you still reading? And I said, I just have to know what happened. And I was so proud of myself during this one because I did not let myself Google anything. Because I mean, this is like just, it happened. And I mean, the case was still ongoing in 2019. So I there's lots of information available and pictures and stuff, but I was like, I'm not going to Google anything until I finished. And then of course, as soon as I read the last word, I mean, my fingertips were <laughs> flying over that keyboard, but it is just, so basically the premise of the story is Rachel. This is a memoir. She meets this friend, Anna, and they become close and she it's about their relationship and about basically how Anna dupes her into thinking that she is this heiress, this, and it is, I don't want to spoil anything because it is just a wild story. So it, oh, like, so good. So that is my friend, Anna, the true story of a fake heiress by Rachel yeah. Deloche Williams. So good. I listened to that one on audio and it was one of those, I just wanted to listen through every moment <laughs> of every day until I finished. It was, yes. it really is compelling. Yes. Yeah. Ashley, how about you? I'm going to go with Taylor Jenkins Reads. The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo. I spoke about this one some when I read it. It's not like there, I was mentioning to Sarah and Jen before that there are some like fantasy series that I really have gotten swept up in, like read the whole series at once. But it's been a while for me since I have done that. And so that engrossing experience, I feel like I'm a little bit removed from. I just don't have, like that's just not my life right now that I can, even if I'm absolutely loving it, I just cannot be totally immersed in a whole series. But I think that that was the one of the latest times for me that I was both uh, really could, I mean, I couldn't wait to get back to the book every, every day and, and went through it very quickly in just a short period of time. And also was sad as I was reading it that I knew it was going to end. And I think that is the sign of a really great book for me that like, I was so in love with Evelyn Hugo herself. Like I was so in love with her character and just her unapologetic and relentless drive to serve what she believed she needed to do in her life. And I really admired that. I love seeing a woman portrayed that way in a book. And I just, you know, and I mean, fearless, fearlessly looking at all of the flaws of herself. And so I just loved all of that. And I did have that feeling of, wanting to get back to it, but also wanting to draw it out because I loved her so much and wanted to keep reading about her life experiences. And Monique, the person who was telling her story, I loved her story as well and would be very interested to learn more about her life. So mm -hmm. that was a good one for that all absorbing feeling for me. So that was Taylor Jenkins reads The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo. Yeah, I think she is just so good at building compelling characters and compelling stories. 
And even that is my favorite of hers also. But I think even in the ones that I don't like as well, I felt that same compulsion and that same attachment. Like it's one of those that it's hard to come out of the story and be in your real life because my brain just kept spinning over each of hers. Yes. And I feel like I think what's remarkable about it is like they're not super plot driven. Like I said, I have mm-hmm. had some fantasy books that I absolutely love, but I was very much reading for plot. And I really wanted to know what was going to happen in the plot. And I feel like she does such a great job of rich characters, but you are really engrossed in them, which I think is remarkable. So what about you, Jen? So back in January, I read Tracy Dion's Legend Born, and I reviewed this on our website, underbridgepod.com. This is one of those, I'm so sad that only the first book is out because I feel like I would have continued the whole series this way. It is a chunky book, but I was so, they're laughing at me now because I said it's a chunky book. (laughs) I love my friends. I thought it was a great description. I knew it was too. Anyway, moving on. So it is, it is a chunky book. I'm sticking with it. And I opened it thinking it would take me a while to read and I was really wrong. It's too long to truly be a one sitting book, but it's about as close as I can realistically get because I, I loved it because it's fantasy and I love fantasy. And like Ashley was saying, I do think a lot of great YA fantasy books are just written in a way that they propel you forward. But this one also had this whole social justice storyline that I found really resonant and really, really smart. And it had Arthurian legends woven in. So it was just like three of the things that I absolutely love to read about all woven into this one story. So it's about a girl named Brie who is 16. And right at the beginning of the book, her mother has died. And she feels like there was something strange about her death, which was in a car accident, but she can't put her finger on what. And she and her mother had had a huge fight the day that she died. And that was the last time that she saw her. She and her best friend apply to this early college program. So they're supposed to be juniors in high school. So they go to this early college program together. And right after they get there, Brie has sort of created this wall so that she can protect her emotions because she's afraid to feel and to be really vulnerable. And so she is acting really recklessly when they go to this college and they go out to do this cliff jumping thing, knowing that it's against the rules with this whole crowd of people. And while they are there, the fantasy storyline starts because there are these weird things floating in the air. There's this guy doing magic. And then after all of that resolves, which I don't want to describe too much because it'll give too much away, a police officer comes and gets Bree and her friends who is Asian American and is taking them back to the campus. And there are just all of these frightening things. Some of them are microaggressions and some I would just say are aggressions that are happening with the police officer. And so you just see, right. I mean, this is probably in the first three or four chapters. You just see all of these storylines start coming together right from the beginning. You all would love it. I just could not put it down because I felt like it was balancing so well, the fantasy and the, hey, this is our reality part of, parts of it. So that is Tracy Dion's Legend Born, which I just think everybody should read. I mean, you may want to wait until all of the books are out because I'm so sad that any part of this is going to be fuzzy when book two comes out, but I love it. 
I can't wait to read that one. I have seen nothing but rave reviews. And so I can't wait. It's really brilliant. All right. Well, we're going to get back to a non-bookish question. This one is, does your family read a lot or are they annoyed that you read so much? This time I'm, I'm losing track of whose turn it is to talk first. So I'm going to say Sarah, and I'm sorry if that is wrong. My family does not read as much as I do. I think my husband probably gets annoyed sometimes because I would prefer to read than to like watch something sometimes. And both of my kids, they, they will read. My son used to love to read, but he's at that 12, 13, you know, 12 going on 13 age. And he doesn't want to read as much. And my daughter, well, she'll read something, but she is not like this this voracious reader like I am. And I don't think the kids get very annoyed because they do their own things a lot, but I think sometimes my husband does, but I still do it anyway. (laughs) Ashley, how about you? (laughs) So my kids are little, so it's kind of hard to say they would let, I mean, if I would read to them, they would listen all day. So they absolutely love to be read to. And my oldest child is more and more enjoying reading to herself. She is at the age, she's six. So she likes to read to herself, but she wants to read the chapter books and the graphic novels that she loves. And that's what she works on when she's reading by herself, instead of getting out the picture books that of course she could read more easily. So I think she's kind of finding her way with that. But both of them, I mean, there are a lot of times that I see them sitting you know, looking at books on their own. It was really fun at Christmas, for example, that they got some new books. And of all the things that were laying around the house, like I found them on the steps and each of them had a book and they were both, you know, absorbing themselves in the new story. And so that was really sweet. It was fun to see that. I want them to love it just because it brings me so much joy. So I certainly don't think that everyone has to be a reader, but because that has been such a great part of my own life, I wish that for my children. And my husband is he so he is uh, I mean he has his PhD and he does a lot of research so he is surrounded by books and reads tons of books like I mean our house is ridiculous I could take a picture of his desk right now and there's probably 85 books on there (laughs) because he was working on an article and you know so he does a ton of reading but I do think that he does not read a whole lot for pleasure and when he does he wants to read like comics or graphic novels or things like that a lot of the time because he's so laden with books that he is reading for work and he enjoys them but they're not for pleasure I would say. So definitely, and I don't think any of them are annoyed by my reading, but, but sadly, I think that's because I don't ever do it when when they are awake for my kids. Like, I'm not reading during the day. So I don't think I'm bothering them because sadly for me, I'm not reading. And then at night, same as you, Sarah, there are a lot of times that my husband would rather watch. And that's because he does a lot more of the reading during the day and when he's working. And so he wants to take a break from that. And I am perfectly happy to be reading because again, I usually haven't done it all day. So I want to, but I mean, you know, we work it out. It's, it's okay. I've gotten to where for sure I always read before bed and I enjoy that. Even if I don't get to it any other time, I can count on the fact that I'll do that before I go to sleep. And that's been really nice. So what about you, Jen? So My family does read a lot. They don't read as much as I do, but I don't know that many people do. (laughs) I'm sort of obsessive. And I read, I mean, 
I would say I read like it's my job, but it kind of is. I'm an English teacher and I have the podcast. So I have a lot of reasons to read, but I also, yeah, I read it a lot. And, but yeah, my husband is always reading and he, he defaults to certain authors and certain types of books. Like he reads a lot of suspense. He reads a lot of thrillers. He reads a lot of mysteries, but he also reads, he loved the hate you give. He, he will read books that I give him. He likes to read nonfiction some. So he is definitely open to reading outside of those genres. So that's where he veers. I had him reading um, Jason Reynolds recently, which made me insanely happy. So my boys love to read. So my older son, who is 14, reads a lot of fiction. And my younger son tends to read more graphic novels and nonfiction. Both of them love audiobooks. And so sometimes they'll be playing, I don't know how they do it, but sometimes they'll be playing video games or my younger son loves art and they'll be listening to audiobooks while they're doing it. They're really good at multitasking even though I know people say that's not possible, they are. And I will also say my older son, I see a lot of myself in him and that he does comfort reading a lot. And so during the pandemic, there are a few touchstone series that he read and reread. And I could see, I talked a lot about comfort reading while we were home and he was definitely doing the same thing. So he was diving back into those familiar stories and I would encourage him to read new things. But then I also understood exactly why he was doing it and was doing comfort reading myself. So, but yeah, I would say reading is a really central part of our lives. And the boys are still changing as readers. But I think that in our house, books are a central part of things. So, all right. So our next question, I realized that was supposed to be a non-bookish question and it ended up being quite bookish, but that's okay. So the next one is, do you have a system you use when you review a book to rate it? Ashley? So I don't, I have found before we had the podcast and before I was on Bookstagram and that kind of thing, I was very comfortable with Goodreads, which Jen brought into my life. We talked on our other one about 2012 <laughs> when I moved here and I learned a lot about young adult literature. And also I had never done Goodreads before. And again, that was something that the high school where we were that came into my life around then. And I, I love it. So I use Goodreads and I always was so fine with the star ratings and did not think twice about what I put in. But I've found over time that now that I have to or feel that I need to be ready to articulate my favorites and things like that, that I am not very comfortable with having a system. It's hard for me. It's hard for me even in one month people always want to have a favorite just from the month. And it's hard for me even to do that, much less to look at a year. I have found I would like to have a better system for rating books because I am finding that mine is not super related, super reliable. So I'm open to suggestions of people who have systems that they like because I have found that I am lacking and would like to feel more secure about the way I make a choice at the time because I've found that as I look back six months later, I might feel differently toward a book than I did when I made the rating. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Sarah, how about you? Yeah, I kind of feel the same way. <laughs> it's for me, like when I'm trying to rate a book, I always feel like I feel in my head that I need to be rating it compared to something else. And if I'm reading the hearts invisible furies and, you know, a really fun romance, 
they, I, I love them both, but how am I supposed to rate them on the same scale? So I just, I get very bogged down in the scaling. So basically a lot of times if I think something, if I just loved it, like when I finish it and I just loved it, I'll be, I'll post it in my stories on Instagram and be like, this is a five-star read, but I don't go and really, I don't do a lot of rating on Amazon or on Goodreads because I just, I don't feel like I can be fair about it because it just depends on my mood. And sometimes I read a book and I know that it was a great read, but I did, it wasn't for me. And then I just, I put too much pressure, I guess, on myself. And I just feel too much responsibility to the writers who write these books that I just, a lot of times it makes it really difficult for me to Put a star rating. Mm-hmm. So I've just kind of I've gotten more out of it. The longer that we've been doing the podcast and I've been reading more broadly, the less I feel compelled to rate my books. That makes a lot of sense to me. That's kind of how I felt. It's just like it's really hard to do. And like you said, the comparative part is such an issue for me. I I found that I'll read three or four five star books in a row. And I, I did enjoy them, but I'm also wondering if where was I influenced by the other great one or like I'll go a long time and none right. of them are a five star and then I'm like is that really true and I'm always like what am I compared like what is it a five star on the basis of what yeah. <laughs> you know because mm-hmm. I mean there's that comparative thing but you're not really comparing it so yeah I feel like some of them you have that resounding feeling but sometimes yeah you don't know that until a while later you know for me right the favorites rise above it's almost as if they mm-hmm. over time everything settles that I've read and then a few float to the top and I'm like oh those are my favorites but I need distance yes. I think to know that sometimes I agree yeah. what about you Jen yeah this is something I struggle with a lot I think about it a lot so I do rate all of the books on Goodreads and I have a spreadsheet as well where I use those star ratings as a starting point and then have 0.5s. Part of it is just a practicality for me. I will say my ratings are not reliable at all. And I almost always have to look at my four, four and a half and five star reads to actually, like you all are saying, the ones that stick with me, sometimes I don't know when I finish it, which ones are going to resonate at the end of the year. And a lot of times I'm like, why did I rate that one so low or, oh, that's not a five-star read at all, but it's a starting point for me. And that's the way I look at it. I will say I've gotten quite self-conscious because I know authors get really frustrated by three-star reads. And I think a three-star read is fine. I don't think that's a bad thing, but now I hesitate to rate something three stars because I don't want to insult anybody. So yeah, it's a really complicated question and a really, I, I do not have a system. It's something I struggle with, but it's also something I don't feel as if I can give up right now just because of the podcast and because of needing to have some way to talk about a slice of the books I read rather than all of them. So yeah, same, same Jen, but I still put it on Goodreads every time, but I have gotten, I mean, I feel like I would, I would be very reluctant now to do a one or two star for sure. So then if you're only looking at three through five and three, I have reticence about, then it is a very small window of what looks like a five-star system. That's not really the spread. And so I think that part's hard too. Yeah. It's really complicated, but that may not be comforting yeah. listeners to, to yeah. hear that. But, <laughs> <laughs> since we're making lots of recommendations I, to you all. But I mean, I think that the reality is it's just really complicated. 
I always think about Roger Ebert, who is my favorite movie critic of all time. And he talked about, he had a five-star rating system on his website. And he said that he rated movies on what their intention was, on what their aspirations were. So Sarah, when you were talking about the Hearts of Visible Furies versus a rom-com, he would say, well, you're comparing the rom-com against other rom-coms. You're not comparing the rom-com against the Hearts of Visible Furies because clearly their goals are different for the reader. And I always liked that. I will say, I think he didn't hold... I love Roger Ebert. I don't think he was consistent either. So, I, but I think you have to have some markers in your mind if you're going to do it at all. And I think if you don't have to, I would fully support not doing ratings. But I think, again, where we are, we kind of have to have some some way to filter through what we're reading. So I do like it on other people's. Like I love to see what other people's five-star things are. And so I've tried to be true to that also. It's a fast way to see if you identify with someone as a reader and that helps recommendations. I mean, I think it is nice to, so I've tried to be more conscientious on my Instagram to show the ones that are my favorites. I don't think it has to be, I don't think you have to show disparaging reviews, but I do think it helps to say these are my favorites because then if people are looking at my account, it helps them know whether when I make a recommendation, it's a good fit for them. So I do think they're advantageous mm-hmm. in that way. On the recipient side, I really like it when people use ratings. Yeah. I just struggle with it on the giving side. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, we are going to do a quick speed round. We have a few questions we're going to work through very quickly with just a sentence or two explanation. So for this one, Sarah, you're going to go first. And our first question is, what do you like to do for fun? This is going to sound really cringy, but I really do like to exercise. (laughs) And I think too, where we are right now or where we've been in 2020 and the first part of 2021, it, there's not a lot to do, but I, so like, that's been my, the thing that I've done for myself throughout the whole pandemic. And then the first part of 2021, however, when I'm able to go and do things for fun, I love to have girls weekends with my friends and I, I love to go to the movies. Yeah. Ashley, what do you like to do for fun? I love to travel as people who listen to the podcast know throughout the pandemic, that was a hard thing to give up, but I love to travel and I also love to be outside. So when we were stuck inside, just being able to be outside instead was a great comfort for me. What about you, Jen? So I like to read. I like to watch TV and movies. I like to spend time with my family, both my husband and my boys, but also my extended family. I love time with my friends. I miss, yeah, I miss seeing everybody so much. So yeah, I'm kind of a homebody, severe introvert. So I'll All of those things are probably not surprising, but all right. Next question. Has there ever been a book you didn't think was as great as the hype? Ashley. I always hate this kind of question, but I'm going to go with one that I very much did not enjoy. And it was E.E. Lockhart's We Were Liars. I had heard great things about that book. I will not go on and on about how much I did not like it. It was not as great as the hype for me, for sure. Sarah. This is also one that... (laughs) (laughs) seems pretty polarizing. People either loved it or didn't. And I fell on the side that I just didn't really like it. And that is Kristen Hanna's The Great Alone. 
But I'm like, Ashley, I love these kind of questions. <laughs> Jen, how about you? Mine is Delia Owens's Where the Crawdads Sing, which was and continues to be a sensation selling everywhere and book clubs talking about it. And I just, I was 90 pages in and I texted our friend Tim. Oh my gosh, Tim, you're going to love this book. It's got this great Gothic Southern description. And then the next day when I saw him, I said, "Never mind, you do not want to read that book. And it just, and a lot of people went the other way. They didn't like the beginning and they liked the way it went, but I just, yep, not, not for me. That would have been mine, Jen. I, when I, we got on our planning document, that was the one that I had in my head, but I also mm -hmm. had another one. <laughs> I will say I could have also done the great alone and we were liars because I, I was united with you all in those as well. So, and I think the, where, I think where the crawdads sing and the great alone have some similarities I do in too. terms of what didn't work for me. <laughs> Yeah, I would say so as well. All right. And our final speed round question is, what are you watching now? Sarah? Well, <laughs> I have been having a really hard time focusing on any type of scripted television. I, so I tried several different things and I just, I like kind of, you know, everyone knows I like reality shows. So instead of watching all these brand new, awesome shows that people are producing and putting out there, I made the decision to go back and start at season one of Top Chef, which I love, and watch some of the earliest seasons because I haven't watched those. I, I kind of started a little bit late in the game with Top Chef and watched from a certain point on, but I haven't seen the first few seasons. And if you're a Top Chef enthusiast, you know that some chefs from across seasons will show up sometimes and Top Chef Masters or something like that. So I was like, I'm going to get the origin story of all these chefs I've recognized from later seasons. I want to see what their origin stories are. So I have started at season one and I am working my way through the first six or seven seasons that I haven't seen. So oh, that's fun. Yeah. I love Top Chef. Ashley, how about you? I am really enjoying The Witcher on Netflix. It's fun. It's been fun to watch and I feel like it is not a perfect show, but I am compelled to keep going with it, which for me is a really good sign. So, cause I, I struggle with getting interested in things. So yeah, I really like that. I know most people have finished this one already, but I am watching Virgin River on Netflix. And I think it is, it is a nice story. I don't think there's anything terribly there are no big conflicts thus far. I know there will be conflicts, but yeah, I'm enjoying that one. So I'm sure most of you have already watched that all the way through, but I'm just starting. So, all right, well, we are going to end our episode with our give me one and we are doing favorite board game. Uh, Ashley. So one I love with little kids is called Baby Dinosaur Rescue. <laughs> and that's what <laughs> I did at, at my house. I found, a, I found it hard to find good games for young kids. And so I did want to share that one because it is great. It is a team game and the goal is relatively clear, but it does involve cards and you work together to move forward on the board game. And so I loved all of that because I feel like it introduces the idea of how to use cards to play, but you're working together to meet the goal of getting the dinosaurs to their safe island before the lava explodes is basically the premise. And so I really like it because I think it introduces a lot of important concepts for kids, but it's not hard. And then also five minute dungeon is great for older. We play it with our little kids, but it is good for older people as well. Like 
my husband and I like playing it by ourselves. So I think that's a good sign, but it's another team game. I think it's a good introduction to some of the more like role-playing sort of games because you have a character who has certain abilities, but it's on a card and then you each are playing cards to beat a boss. And so again, good team building and, and it's fun. Sarah, how about you? I am going to go with Harry Potter Clue. It is, uh, of course, a take on the the classic board game Clue, but it's really cool because it has moving parts on it. So the staircases are moving. So you have to be able to move throughout Hogwarts without with the way that the staircases are moving. So sometimes doors are open, sometimes they're closed. And it's fairly complicated compared to traditional Clue, but I really enjoy playing that with my family. But it does take longer than traditional Clue, mm. so just know that. But it's a lot of fun. That sounds great. What about you, Jen? So mine is technically a card game, not a board game, but I'm going to say it anyway. It's Phase 10, and it is a combo of, I would say, Uno and Rummy. So you have 10 phases that you have to get through. And there'll be things like three of a kind or five in a row. And basically you have to complete the phase. And then once someone in the group completes the phase, everybody else is stuck where they are. So, and it accumulates. So once you finish phase one, then you go to phase two. Well, if everybody else is still has to do phase one, they might be working behind a phase in the next round. But yeah, it's really fun. It can take a while. It can go really fast. It's tough to predict. It, it's, there's a lot of chance to it, but some strategy, which I found with my boys is a nice blend. They don't want all strategy all the time, but they like that little element of strategy combined with, uh, you know, if you get a bad hand, you're just out of luck probably for that round. So that one's really fun. And it's not, the boys have been playing since they were pretty young. So it's not super tough to learn, but I think it's a nice sort of entree into something like Rummy, which my family growing up played a lot at. And my dad was cutthroat. He he had no mercy on any children. So I learned very quickly <laughs> to play rummy well. And my boys are just not, they're not ready for that kind of super, super, super competitive card games, even still. So, all right. Well, thank you all so much for listening. We loved getting to talk about these different topics. If you have other things you'd like to know, we can start collecting questions for our next Get to Know the Underbridge Toasts episode. So yeah, thanks for joining us. Do you have comments or opinions about what you heard today? We'd love to hear them. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at UnderbridgePod or on the web at UnderbridgePod.com for a list of ways to support us. We'd like to thank Jared Featherstone, who composed our theme music, Strings of Light, and Katie Amy of Amy Photography, our podcast photographer. Thanks for listening to Unabridged. 